paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org. On this episode of The Untold Story, I talk with Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, James Cleverly. We sat down at the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado. I just want to say that I'm really honored to have an opportunity to interview the Foreign Secretary of the UK, James Cleverly, who's joining us today. So we want to get right to it. We don't have that much time, so I want to let him jump in uh, and say good morning to everyone. And uh, you had some something you wanted to say off the, right off the top, sir. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, it's, it's a genuine pleasure to be here as the UK's uh, Foreign Secretary. Uh, as you've heard, I've got a rather long and sprawling job title, but I am uh, the equivalent of your Secretary of State, uh, Foreign Minister. Um, and uh, I also, when it comes to the, the full spectrum of the work that you're discussing here at this, uh, this gathering, uh, I'm also responsible for our intelligence services, both uh, HUMINT and SIGINT intelligence intelligence services uh, as well. Um, and so my, my remit covers uh, foreign policy, uh, it covers uh, intelligence, and obviously there are a number of uh, issues which are at the forefront of my mind. Uh, I, as you've just heard, I've recently come back from NATO summit in uh, Vilnius. I went from there to the ASEAN summit in Jakarta. So I've been uh, spending the last week thinking about the situation in Ukraine, Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to put on record the UK's huge gratitude for the role that the United States of America has uh, played uh, supporting Ukrainians in their self-defense. And the point I've made over and over again is it's not just about Ukraine. This is about all of us. And the reason this is so very, very important is because what is at stake is not just the geography and the, the territorial integrity of Ukraine, but the UN Charter, uh, the, the, the message that we send to the world about the West's resolve and our willingness to defend our principles and those things that underpin uh, freedom and democracy and the rule of law. Uh, and then, of course, over in, the, over in ASEAN, I was thinking very much about the nature of the relationship between the UK uh, and uh, South Asian countries uh, and China and our friends and partners in the region. And, of course, I'm reminded, having come this far west, I know I've not quite hit the West Coast yet, but I'm reminded that the United States of America is, of course, a Pacific country as well as an Atlantic uh, country. So a lot of these things we've been working on um, are... I very much value the relationship that I have with my US uh, counterparts who work very, very closely. Um, and I like to uh, make sure that I'm bringing value to the relationship and that's maybe one of the things that we can discuss uh, whilst we're talking. Thank you. Great. Um, I'd love to start with Ukraine, as you mentioned. An interesting piece this morning that quoted your head of MI6, Richard Moore. Uh, he says that there are, quote, deep fractures in the elite circle around Putin. 
and that the Prigozhin coup attempt was deeply humiliating to Putin. Uh, and yet Putin lets him roam free right now. So what's your assessment of that situation? So uh, Richard is the head of uh, MI6, our, our intelligence agency, and I, I speak with him very regularly on these on these issues and of course if we cast our minds back to the start of this conflict and the messaging that Putin was trying to put out that the Russians were uniquely resilient that they had the real grit and the determination and the decadent uh, fickle West would ultimately lose interest and lose resolve and yet what we're seeing is the first cracks are appearing on the Russian side rather than on our side. And it doesn't matter how Putin tries to spin it, an attempted coup is never a good look. Um, and, um, and, so, and so, yeah, what we are seeing is it's the Russian people that are increasingly frustrated uh, with Putin. We are seeing this exodus of bright, talented, thoughtful uh, young Russians, entrepreneurs, technologists, business people, they are leaving Russia in their droves. I think Richard also made, uh, uh, made the point that um, that will have intelligence uh, implications. There are people, there are Russians who now realize that Putin is doing more damage to Russia than he is to uh, anywhere else, notwithstanding the, the, the terrible headlines that we're seeing about uh, missile strikes overnight. Now, our view is that the leadership of the Russian Federation is exclusively an issue for the Russian people. But the bottom line is the Russian people are showing the world that they are increasingly frustrated with Putin. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. He was almost calling for a Russian resistance and saying the door is always open uh, and we would love to talk to you um, if, if you'd like to bring information our way. Um, you, you made a strong speech at the UN and said to Putin that the war must end now and that his troops must leave. But many who observe what's going on in the front lines in, in Ukraine say that really the lines have not moved much at all since November, that he took about 17% of the country in the initial push and the weeks that followed, and that he still has 17% of the country. So in your assessment, is the war at a stalemate right now? Oh, be under no illusion, Russia is losing. Ukraine is winning. And I've said this a number of times, and I absolutely stand, stand by this. We have got to remember that this is not a film. This is not an action movie. In films, it's really, really simple. In the first act, the aggressor swarms across the border, and, and the plucky Ukrainians defend themselves against the odds. In the second act of the film, there's this diplomatic effort, an international coalition of support. Uh, we give arms, equipment, and training to the Ukrainians. And then the third act, they get this decisive breakthrough. They get to the Azov coast, or the Black Sea coast, and, um, and the credits roll. And, and, and the, you know, uh, the leading actors kiss and uh, yeah, we wait for Oscar night. It doesn't work like that in the real world. In the real world, the Russian forces have spent the winter digging in. They've riddled the south and the uh, southeast of Ukraine with minefields, with trench systems, with physical barricades. And the Ukrainians are regaining territory over the course of weeks that Russia took months to acquire. Russia is losing on the battlefield and we mustn't allow ourselves to be seduced by the Russian propaganda that somehow this is a stalemate. It is not. We have a choice, therefore. Do we stick with it and give the Ukrainians what they need to continue to make gains or do we drop the ball? Do we, you know, 
prove Putin right. And the choice is entirely in, my, in, 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 in our hands. Uh, and I think what we should do is we should, we should demonstrate to Putin and anyone else that is watching that we have the grit, that we have the determination, that we have the strategic endurance, and that the things that we are defending, we don't defend for only 18 months, maybe 24 months at a push. We defend them until they are secured. And I think that's the message that we need to get across. And what we have seen is uh, with the Prigozhin situation, it's fragile. Russia is fragile. The Ukrainians took a lot of punches over the last 18 months, and now they're dishing some back out again. And the Russian military weren't expecting it. They don't like it. And those cracks are appearing. So given that, it's been interesting to watch because in many of the moves that have been made in this war, the UK has been in the lead in terms of tanks, in terms of long-range missiles, in terms of training pilots. And then the US sort of comes along over time. So if you're characterizing a very critical moment right now, is there anything that you believe we need to push for right now in terms of air cover? Because some of the soldiers on the ground in Ukraine say they feel like they're riding a bike without pedals because they don't have appropriate air cover. Well, thank you for the, the, the comments you made about the UK's contribution to this. And in terms of our proportion of GDP, the UK, the US, and a, a number of other countries are very much in the lead in our support to Ukraine. But I think we should, you know, we, we, we got to uh, recognize the fact that the United States of America has been the key military supporter of the Ukrainians. And I'm incredibly grateful. I speak to the, uh, the Ukrainian government, both President Zelensky himself, but more regularly, Dmitry Kaleba, my, my Ukrainian opposite number. Um, and, and there is uh, a huge amount of gratitude for the amount of support that the US has been given. Um, the UK is very proud of the fact that we act quickly, we act decisively, we gave those N-laws um, uh, the uh, light anti-tank weapons that were so decisive at the beginning part of the conflict. We made the decision first to uh, donate main battle tanks. We made the commitment to train fast jet pilots. And I know the Ukrainians are after uh, F-16s. Uh, we don't hold F-16s, it's not a platform that we utilize. Um, but we've donated huge numbers of 155 artillery systems. I'm a gunner officer. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that, 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 that guns, 155 artillery, is making a decisive effect on the battlefield. Um, and we do what we do because we believe it to be the right thing to do. Um, other countries uh, work with us, work with the Ukrainians. I say the US has done an incredible amount. And my observation is that we ultimately, I think, have to stick with the Ukrainians until they are victorious. I think there is a real incentive to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, because my, my good friend, I think he's going to be coming here later on today or maybe tomorrow, Tom Tugendhat, who's the uh, security minister, a very close friend of mine, he made an incredibly important point. You know, a fair fight is the worst fight. You don't want it to be evenly matched because that means it, it takes longer and more people suffer. What you want is a decisive level of overmatch. And that's what we should try and achieve uh, with Ukraine. We have more material than Russia has. Our military production capability is greater than Russia's. We have an international coalition that is supporting Ukraine. Russia is finding itself increasingly isolated on the world stage, having to rely on Iran for uh, military uh, equipment and um, and therefore it is in our gift to overmatch uh, or help the ukrainians overmatch the russians and i think we should look very seriously at how we do that
So does that mean that you would be urging the U.S. to pick up the pace, recognizing that we, you know, the United States is obviously, in terms of dollars, the dominant supporter of Ukraine? Do you think that, would you like to see faster decision making and faster material getting to the battlefield on our part? So I, I'm, I'm not singling anybody out. Now, the U.S.'s contribution is decisive, no doubt about it. But as I say, you know, the U.S. has moved quickly. Funnily enough, um, you know, last year I was having conversations with um, uh, members of the administration and I said, you are doing a huge amount. Y you are being incredibly impactful in Ukraine's self-defense, but there seems to be a, res a resistance to talking about it. The American people didn't know how much the American people were giving. And, and how much uh, uh, influence, positive influence America was having. I think now America is more comfortable with talking about what it's doing and it, it, it should be rightly proud of what it has done and what it currently is doing. Um, and I'm saying that all of us have got to stick with it and have got to keep supporting the Ukrainians in their self-defense. If, if I single the USA out at all, I single it out because it has done so much. Um, and, and I single it out for praise rather than criticism. The point is we have all got to continue. We've all got to stick with it, and we've all got to demonstrate that grit and determination. One last question on Ukraine, because I want to talk to you quickly about AI in China as well. But with regard to the different barriers that we have seen fall in terms of, well, we would never commit tanks, we would never commit long-range missiles, we would never commit something that would take out um, you know, where the missiles are coming from on the Russian side. Uh, we have now sent, the president sent 3,000 troops to Europe, uh, U.S. troops to Europe as sort of, you know, a backstop. Do you think we will ever see a day when U.S. or U.K. troops are on the ground in Ukraine? Well, I, I hope not. I don't expect so. I, I, I genuinely don't expect so. But I do think we need to make it uh, absolutely clear. And, and this, was, um, this was a conversation that, that my, my, my good friend, uh, Tobias Bilstrom, who is the uh, Swedish foreign minister, uh, something he said when I, when I was over in uh, Sweden not so long ago, which really struck me. He said one of the reasons why Sweden was so determined to join NATO after decades of neutrality is he said at the start of this conflict, the Swedish people recognized something, that NATO supports its friends, but NATO defends its allies. And that subtle but significant difference was really, really key. That is why Sweden so determined to become an ally. Um, and what the US have done with regard to uh, that forward positioning of troops, what the UK has done in Estonia, where we uh, have troops uh, only a few miles from the, uh, from the Russian border helping to support the Baltic flank, is that we make it very clear that we are supporting Ukraine in Ukraine's self-defense, but we are absolutely ready to defend our NATO allies. That's a different relationship, a significant and important difference. NATO is the cornerstone of the Euro-Atlantic defense structure. We defend our allies and we do so robustly, but we continue to support our friends. The Untold Story continues right after this. Okay, so we've talked a lot about um, sort of conventional warfare, but one of the things that you brought up at 
the UN this week was AI and the role that, that it could play. Um, you said its speed and scale and spread of disinformation is potentially hugely harmful for democracies all around the globe and that it can aid in the reckless quest for weapons of mass destruction by state actors and non-state actors. Tell us your thoughts on what we need to know about this. Well, AI is evolving at such a huge pace, and I know it was touched on, uh, I heard some conversations about it in the previous session. Um, and what we learn from technological advances is that they amplify and they accelerate. It's not that AI creates fundamentally new challenges or presents fundamentally new opportunities, but it accelerates and amplifies. Now that can be turned, and I, and I have no doubt that it will be turned to good. Uh, I think AI's ability to assist research, whether that be in uh, disease alleviation, whether that be in uh, health uh, more broadly, whether that be in environmental protections or climate change or whatever, there's a load of areas where just the volume and speed with which AI can help us think and decide and research, I think is absolutely key. But we also have to realize that research is a completely neutral uh, activity and research can be utilized for good but research can also be utilized for malign activity uh, as well what we need to do is we need to recognize that that's why i hosted that's why i chaired the first ever un security council discussion and debate on AI. Uh, we had speakers from all over the world, um, and I, I, and the, my prime minister recognised that if we're going to, if we are going to successfully harness the benefits, we have to successfully uh, mitigate and limit the disbenefits, and we are going to have to do that internationally and collaboratively. That's why we've initiated the conversation at the UN Security Council. That's why we're hosting the um, AI Security Summit in the UK in uh, the autumn. That's the fall for you lot. Um, and um, I just want to make sure we're not on crossed wires on that. So we'll, we'll be hosting that, but we recognise. So the UK, um, you know, we, we, we've always been at the forefront of technology. Alan Turing uh, was a Brit. Obviously, the internet, uh, you know, the World Wide Web was, was uh, a British invention. <laughs> not Al Gore. No. <laughs> um, so look, we have a part to play, but none of us in the UK pretend that we're going to do this on our own. We're not attempting to do this on our own. We're going to use our, our, our convening power, uh, the clustering of, of, of really, really clever, bright thinkers in the UK and that, that we can bring to the UK to help thrash out how we, as I say, how we make the most of the positives and protect ourselves from the potential negatives. One question I want to go back to on, on NATO, because in the US, there's a lot of criticism, actually, of who's putting in their, their 2%. And uh, I think as we look towards the election, we see growing sentiment about questions about how much money is being spent on the war. I think it, you know, the numbers say that the majority of Americans still support the war, but the numbers have come down a little bit. And I think it will be a major discussion in the presidential election cycle. So do you think there needs to be a firmer message to Germany, to Italy, to the other countries in Europe that are right on the border of this whole thing, that they must do their 2% commitment that they made? The UK feels very strongly on this. We've been a 2% contributing NATO ally for, I, I lose track, for as long as I can remember. And the, the commitments that were made at the Wales Summit are ones that we are very, very comfortable sticking to. Our position is clear. 
that all NATO allies should contribute at least 2%, and 2% should be a floor, uh, not a ceiling. We are reminded that NATO matters. As I say, my the, uh, conversation with the Swedish Foreign Minister really, really stuck with me, that NATO is the ultimate uh, form of defense because it's the ultimate form of deterrent for a deterrent to be credible it needs to be modern it needs to be well funded it needs to be effective that's why the two percent matters it's not an arbitrary figure it is an important figure the u.s again once again i'm going to single the u.s out for uh, for praise has consistently been way above two uh, percent we're all very uh, grateful for that and i think all of us have to step up to the plate um, and yeah, I'm reminded when I was in London government, uh, I, I uh, ran the fire authority. So, um, and there's a thing uh, in, in in old London buildings. If you go around some of the old older buildings that are you know a couple of hundred years uh, old, um, there are things called fire marks. There are they're, they're these metal plates on the walls of old buildings, and those were the buildings that were insured. And insured buildings, the the firefighters would come to those buildings if a building caught fire and would put the fire out. Um, and uh, they would also put out the fire if the building next to an insured building was on fire. Um, and the reason they did that is because if, you're, if your building's insured, if you're paying to protect your building and the, the house next door is on fire, it is in your interest to deal with the fire there rather than wait for the fire to come to your house. And this whole situation that we're discussing is, is like those fire marks. At the moment, the US, the UK, our friends around the world, we are watching a fire in our neighbor's house. We can do one of two things. We can put it out there, or we can sit and watch until that fire engulfs our house. And if we do that, it will be more expensive. It will be more painful. It will be more difficult. So, so we should deal with the problem that exists now before it becomes a bigger problem closer to home. And that's why those people, and I understand, yeah, you know, we've got bills to pay. The bills are getting bigger. And we recognize here in the US, just as in the UK and many other parts of the world, you know, wages are not catching up with the increase in bills. That hurts. We totally get that. And we are working, uh, I know in the UK and, and other governments around the world, we are working to address that. But the answer is not to drop the ball on this issue. Because if we do, whatever comes next will be more expensive and more painful and more damaging to our economies. That's why. It's not just the right move, but the smart move. The former President Trump, who obviously is, is running again, uh, was very outspoken on this issue of getting people to 2%, and it, and it did increase the funding for NATO in those years. Um, he is the front runner right now. Do you think, you know, what is your thought what it, on what would happen if he were re-elected, and would it change the dynamic that we're talking about here, and if so, in what way? Well, I, I, I saw, um, for the life of me, I can't remember who was interviewing him, um, and uh, he was asked about that, you know, bring the war to a conclusion in, in 24 hours. Uh, yeah, and, 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 uh, and you know, he, he, he did a very, you know, President Trump kind of, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a punchy kind of bombastic, passionate uh, statement. But he also made the point that, you know, if Putin didn't live, I, I, I don't want to misquote him, so it's probably best that you look at the footage. But he said, yeah, he would call upon uh, Zelensky to do a deal. He would call upon Putin to do a deal. And if Putin didn't do a deal, I think the line he said was, then I would give more to the Ukrainians than they have ever had. 
So, you know, he, he is, um, I think he, and I haven't had the chance to discuss this with him, we're not that close, um, but, but yeah, he's making, he, it strikes me that he understands the importance of this. Um, and the point is, in terms of, uh, you know, whoever the, the, the American people choose to be the next president, uh, in the UK, we have a strong track record of working very, very closely and very, very effectively with the person the United States uh, put into the uh, the White House, um, and and that doesn't track you know party to party. Basically, the relationship between the UK and the US is 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 long-standing and it's robust and it's re resilient, uh, and it will be an effective partnership irrespective of which individual or which party uh, happens to be in the White House or in number 10 at any given point in time. That's what history shows us, at least. I have a couple minutes left, but a, a friend of mine here wanted me to ask you about, about Iran, because obviously we're so focused on China and Russia right now, but their ballistic missile system mm. is growing in strength. There are signs that it could reach all of Europe. Um, what are your, th and they're arming Russia, obviously. Um, what can Europe do and what can the UK do in the neighborhood to be more forceful to keep Iran in check? And well, why isn't it happening? Well, so I, I can really only legitimately speak on behalf of the UK. In the UK, we have remained absolutely robust in our decision to work with our, uh, our friends in the region uh, to ensure that we never see nuclear-armed uh, Iran. Uh, we have been subject to a very, very high level of uh, aggression directly into the UK from Iran. Our security services have uh, interrupted uh, at least 15 attempts in the UK mainland to uh, to murder or kidnap uh, individuals. So we have um, we've recently put for, again Tom, who will be here in, uh, later on today, um, took through a piece of legislation massively toughening up our national security architecture. Uh, I two weeks ago uh, put forward another round of uh, sanctions uh, against individuals uh, in Iran because of the brutality that they're meeting out to their own people, particularly women and girls, uh, their support for Russia through armed drones um, and the, uh, the other actions that they're taking. The IRGC is sanctioned by the UK in its entirety, as are certain leadership figures within the IRGC. Uh, and some of those people in the Iranian judiciary who have been bringing these fake charges and brutalizing their own uh, women and girls are also under sanction from the, uh, from the UK. So we maintain a, a, a tough and robust position uh, towards Iran, and, that's, uh, you know, and that will remain our position. I said this when I, when I put forward the statement in the House of Commons. It, and if Iran does not like UK's response, then Iran needs to change its behavior. Our actions are in response to their behavior. And if they don't like it, they can and should change their behavior. But we will, we will maintain a very firm and robust position. And we will, of course, continue working with our allies, both here in the US uh, and across Europe, and in the region, it's so often when we have this conversation, people forget about their neighbors in the region, um, uh, whether they be Israeli or, or, or their um, Arab uh, uh, and Muslim neighbors. They are as uncomfortable with Iran's position as, as anyone else, and we will continue working closely with them as well. So just last question, I know they're wrapping me up, but um, 
A lot of reports lately about your future. Ben Wallace is stepping down as the defense secretary, and many reports that perhaps you might take that position. Do you care to respond to those reports? Well, look, uh, all appointments are in the hands of the prime minister. Uh, well, actually, all appointments are in, the, in the hands of His Majesty the King on the advice of the prime minister. Um, <laughs> That's the, way our, that's the way our system works. Look, I, I, I adore being Foreign Secretary. I, um, I, I think that my observation is that you become better at the job the more you do it, the more relationships you're able to build. Uh, if, anyone, if anyone in the UK is uh, watching, listening, particularly you, Prime Minister, um, I very much want to stay put. I very much want to stay put. Um, I don't know if His Majesty watches the, uh, the Aspen Conference, but, um, but I very much want to stay put as Foreign Secretary. It's a job that I love. I think it's an important job. Um, I've, been, I've been in our Foreign Service. I've been a, a, a minister in our Foreign uh, Department now since uh, February of 2020 so this is this is the job that I know the job that I like to think I'm good at and the job that I absolutely adore so my plan is to stay put I'm gonna be dragged at some point in the future you'll see the nail marks down the <laughs> down the parquet flooring in my office if anyone tries to drag me out I absolutely want to stay put well I, I believe you're on your fourth prime minister if I'm right um, so it's uh, you know good luck good luck to you <laughs> I really want to thank you um, Foreign Secretary, Mr. Cleverly, it's been a pleasure to meet you here in Aspen and uh, wonderful to talk to you. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.